Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Capital Record brought to you by National Review. I am your host, David Bonson, where every single Thursday morning we go live with a new podcast dedicated to the cause of a free and virtuous society. And we are now today entering into the month of March. It's hard to believe that we've already had two months worth of podcast. I think we've had some of our best editions ever so far this year. And today will be no exception. And we have a guest today who is not only one of my dearest friends, one of my um, true uh, intellectual partners as we partake in this adventure, this moral adventure of life. Um, but he is, I think, one of the most profound thinkers of our day in the very matters that we're going to discuss today on, on the podcast related to geopolitics, to monetary policy, foreign intelligence, and what this all means into capital markets. Um, he is also, by the way, a now member, as of today, of the three-timer club here at Capital Record. <laughs> this, uh, this is his third uh, visit to Capital Record, and I think he can either uh, confirm or deny I don't think he's done any media in between these two, uh, <laughs> uh, these, these last couple of times he's been on Capital Record. Renee is um, a devoted worker, uh, a great thinker, and doesn't spend a lot of time uh, doing such things like this. So we're very appreciative to have back with us Renee Ananow of Corbu. Uh, Renee, welcome back to Capital Record. Thank you, my brother. It's good to be home. <laughs> yes, indeed. Only yes. once a year, and I think we're uh, we're on our annual uh, interview dialogue, whatever you want we're, to call it. So we're, we're uh, on super the, excited we're on to be here track. with you. Yes. Now, of course, I've had your your partner on a couple of times. Sam Rines has uh, <laughs> been best. a wonderful guest. Uh, we've talked about energy policy, also something uh, near and dear to your heart, but. Um, this little thing has happened, Renee. I'm trying to think the first time I had you on, I think you and I were so sidetracked at the time with the uniquely uh, Calvinist contribution to some of the things happening out of the COVID moment and what a sort of distinctly Calvinian thought meant for uh, the idol worship of the state that we were experiencing coming out of the pandemic that I don't think we were talking yet about much foreign policy, maybe a little China and trade, regionalization. But this was all well before Putin's invasion. Um, at this point, you tell me, is the biggest story in the world for those who believe geopolitics are an underrated input to capital markets, is the most underrated story in the world Russia or China? I think it's both. So, you know, for the longest time, no one cared about geopolitics if you were a market participant, because geopolitics didn't matter. And then around the Trump era, it started to matter a little bit more with the trade war and then COVID. Is the longest then, time that it didn't matter post-Cold War, pre-9-11, or post-9-11 up to more recent? I'll say 1989, the fall of the wall. Yeah. Till let's call it the trade war and uh, Trump's tariffs. So Even 9/11 to 2019. You don't think 9/11 was an inter uh, interruption to that? Oh, it absolutely was the starting gun, if you will. But I don't think markets cared about it. Huh. So you know that's always our thing here, right? Is that it's not just 
policy for policy's sake is that it has to matter for markets and impact and asset price. That underlines all the work that we do. So, but geopolitics now, and the war in particular, the most important thing for markets, full stop. And I'll tell you why. So I say four reasons. Reason number one, FOMC rate hikes. You know, everyone thinks that the big event of 2022 was the Fed and, and the hiking cycle, right? And maybe that's true. But I think the real catalyst to the hiking cycle was the war. Because if you remember, in January, they highlighted that they were going to hike. And then in February, you saw the invasion. And what happened in March? The statement totally changed, right? That the invasion of Ukraine would add additional upside risk to inflation and growth, right? And then they went 25 and 50 in second quarter when energy prices were at a zenith and uh, headline inflation was double digits. And then clearly June, July, September, four meetings in a row, right? 75 basis points. Now, does anyone think, and this is not provable, but it's my own contention that no war, the Fed would not have hiked 50 and 75, especially surely not in that cadence, right? So that's number one. The war matters for the path of monetary policy. Number two was the trajectory of U.S.-China relations. And we're going to talk about this a lot more throughout the conversation, but I cannot emphasize and underscore enough how much the war in Ukraine and Beijing's diplomatic, political, financial, and maybe even material support of Putin has put tensions in U.S.-China relations that, depending on what happens over the next several months, could permanently alter them, right? So that's point number two, extremely important. Um, and obviously, U.S.-China matters the most for market participants, the most important economic bilateral relationship. And then number three was in the multiple. Clearly, the war is the reason that the multiple across any number of equity indices has derated. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Maybe I can't uh, totally estimate them yet, but it's my contention that there is a nuclear risk premium embedded in the S&P. Number two is that now with all of... Can we we poke at that a little bit? Yeah. Multiple compression is your third. So we have FOMC. We have uh, multiple compression. Um, On the multiple compression front, we get a lower PE ratio because of escalated threat of nuclear war. Number one. After coming from 22 and a half times before the war and before rate cycle began, um, I would argue coming out of a pretty bubblicious moment of risk assets, mm-hmm. we've come all the way down to 17 and a half. Is that the, is that the nuclear war discount, the 17 multiple? I think that in the absence of Putin, it would be closer to 20. Really? 19, right? Um you know, because you would have still had an idea about the zero lower bound. I don't want to get too far into it. Yeah, okay. Right? But here's the main thing, right, is that you had an increase in volatility structurally. And all else equal, that compresses the multiple. 
And then the fourth most important thing is, and, and this is related and segues right into it, is you are chipping away at the foundations of the rules-based order. And the rules-based order is what has underpinned economic growth over the last 30 years. And let me just get into this, right, because this is extremely important. So there's a narrative in the markets that we've had this 30-year, 40-year bond market rally. And what is the mythology behind it, right? That you had Volcker who came in and he had all these rate hikes, saved the country from inflation. And then you had Greenspan come in and the maestro. And then in 1992, very important year, what did you have? Greenspan and Clinton and Bob Rubin and Larry Summers hatched the deal where we were going to have strong dollar policy and then balance the budget an expansionary fiscal contraction coupled with the supply side, right? Now, I don't buy that because here's the issue is that in 1992, there was still in the 10-year treasury a two to 300 basis point inflation premium in the 10-year. And this isn't my conjecture. This is from Greenspan himself because he wrote speeches about it, right? So what happened in 1994, let's call it after 1992, two very important things on the geopolitical front happened. People always forget. 1992, the Soviet Union ceased to exist. And in 1992, Deng Xiaoping went on the Southern tour. So the greatest positive supply side shock in the history of humanity happened in two years, right? Was that, let's call it somewhere between three to four billion people entered the global labor force. So, of course, you got a reduction in inflation, and of course, you got um, lower interest rates, right? And that's what laid the groundwork for, you know, let's call it this global savings glut, which kind of reached its apotheosis in, you know, summers as secular stagnation, right? But that was all about positive supply side shock, driven by what? By geopolitics. So it matters and, a great but, deal. And you're not just merely referring to globalization. You're not just merely referring to what would become WTO, China's, I mean, those things are part of it. But you're adding the peace premium of the death of communism. Absolutely, right? In the Soviet Union and in China. And so, you know, geopolitics is the chief cornerstone of global markets. And... For so long, everyone in our career here has taken that for granted. It was a given. And the issue is, is that deep inside, in their subconscious, market participants know this. They may not articulate it this way, right? But part of the reason for the multiple compression is that you're chipping away at this foundation, and that's a you know, higher volatility, higher cost, maybe negative supply-side environment. You're saying, you're saying something profound and potentially transformative in the way people think about capital markets, if you're correct. From 1951 to 1966, we got multiple expansion in U.S. equity markets, and we had incredible organic earnings growth. So you had the twofer contributing to a robust bull market both growing earnings and a growing multiple applied to those earnings in post-war America and a pretty healthy organic economic expansion. That's right. 
you had severe multiple contraction from the middle part of the 1960s to the early part of the 1980s. Most of the 1980s bull market was organic earnings growth with a little bit of multiple expansion after inflation began being tamed. But then you got significant multiple expansion in the 90s and the 2000s. That's right. If I'm hearing and as you an equity investor, that's what you care about, right? You're suggesting the that the multiple expansion, that the, that the Cold War was holding down the multiple in the 60s and 70s. Is that correct? And OPEC, absolutely. And OPEC and, you know, geopolitical crises rolling uh, across the globe in, you know, late 60s to 70s. And I'll even argue even into the 80s. Why didn't the jihadi threat hold down the multiple in the 2000s after they literally attacked our country? Because it was a non-state actor. Uh. And I want to add this because of the Iraq response. And this is very out of consensus, but I want to, I might as well put this on the table now. I had it for later, right? But the important lesson from 9-11 is the following, and no one, everyone forgets. It. But the important lesson from 9-11 is that there were 19 guys from caves that were 15 minutes away from decapitating the United States government. That's profound. 15 minutes away from decapitating decapitating the United States government. So what did Iraq do? I don't think Iraq had anything to do with democracy or nation building or, you know, uh, restructuring the Middle East. Iraq was a deterrent signal to nation states post 9-11 that, yeah, if you try to decapitate the United States government again, we're going to take care of the non-state actors. But we're going to show you as well that if you are a nation state, any even semblance of a threat will involve the decapitation of your government and your regime. And that actually we will incur a tremendous amount of costs in order to defend that. Up to $10 trillion and, you know, thousands of lives lost, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And again, I don't think the markets are going to articulate it that way, but they understand it as that. And so that took the geopolitical risk premium off the table until, let's call it Trump, COVID, Putin. And that's where we are now. So the, um, the, the Putin moment of, of 2022 became the first sort of... Um, I mean, there were other geopolitical disruptions over the last 25 years. There was Syria, there was Libya, there was, the, you know, um, uh, uh, various conflicts. I mean, not to mention Russia's own intervention in Crimea. Sure. But the Putin invasion of Ukraine, you hold out as particularly profound in um, a paradigmatic way. Why? Because he was the first nation state to explicitly challenge the rules-based order in general in the United States in particular. And he wasn't just any nation state. He was a permanent member of the United Nations Security Council and has done it not with little green men, right, but under the threat of nuclear coercion. 
And he has set a precedent. We can talk about this a little bit more, but he has set a precedent that if you are a non-treaty ally of the United States, that under the cloud of nuclear war, you can create space to attack a sovereign country in the near abroad, right? Uh, through the use of force and without suffering any material consequences. That's where we are, <laughs> do unfortunately. Believe, do you believe that it is about um, NATO um, that, that Putin's uh, fundamental issue is challenging the rules-based order of NATO? Or is it even broader than that, that it's not just NATO-specific, particular treaties, particular rules within the NATO alliance, but that fundamentally the notion of there being any international order at all that limits Russian imperial um, aspirations is what he's at war with. NATO, the NATO expansion is disinformation. I'm not saying that Putin doesn't have legitimate security concerns about NATO, but those were willing to be addressed, especially with Biden in this administration. Putin's problem is with the West writ large and broader speaking is with this idea that large countries don't have a veto on small countries and that they can in implement spheres of influence in their near abroad. That's his problem. You could argue that's even Xi Jinping's problem. That's what they hate. You know, this is a Calvinist principle. I don't have to go yeah. over that with you, right? But um, this whole idea about the universal association um, where nation states can participate in the global economy under a common set of shared principles that's what Putin is after. He hates that. He wants it where actually we play by certain rules and these other guys play by other rules and within these spheres we decide what goes on. It's fundamental so is it misinformation that he um, is fighting to preserve the West? Is it misinformation that the cause of Ukraine is really the cause of libertine um, cultural <laughs> LGBT expansion of freedom. Where, where did we culturalize this war effort? If all it really is, is 19th century Putin, uh, uh, imperialism. I mean, you know, the genius about Putin is that he knows the West better than the West knows itself. Mm. And mm. he studies uh, it very closely. Wow, And he knows where the fissures are in Western society, right? So unfortunately, and I don't mean to be critical of the administration because this is the prior administration as well, Republican and Democrat, right? Is that we have not articulated why the rules-based order is important and why it matters and what the principles are behind it. And that it's really ba very basic, simple things, right? About that big countries don't matter more than small countries and that uh, big guys don't play by different rules than the little guy does. And that the big guy can't 
force you to act a certain way. And if you don't like it, then he can use state-sanctioned violence against you, right? And the implications for that when it goes not just in European shores, but it comes to U.S. homeland shores, right? That has not been articulated. Ironically, you can go from Williamsburg, Brooklyn, with what I just listed all the way to Mobile, Alabama, and it will play there in Peoria, if that makes sense, mm -hmm. right? But we haven't done it. And why is that? It's because the West right now has been psyoped by Putin. We're scared. Are we scared or are there, uh, when you look at some of the paleo conservatives on the right and you look at the, um, this sort of uh, rhetoric that is, um, let's call it Tucker-ish, okay? Um, the, the new, the new primetime Fox News uh, isolationism. Uh, if I didn't know differently, I would assume Ron Paul could get the nomination these days <laughs> in, the, in the Republican Party. Is this anti-international order movement partially fatigue from the two Middle Eastern wars of post 9-11? I think that that is true, that it is in part fatigue. I mean, we could... We should talk a little bit about what U.S. policy is towards the war, because uh, I think that's really important, and, it, and it's a segue to your, to your remark. I think the president is very good at one thing. It's the reason he's the president, actually, has been in Washington for 50 years, is because he knows where the consensus is, and then he puts his name on it. And he knows that the consensus in the United States today is for no intervention, into foreign policy disputes, period. So for people to understand, for market participants to understand the war and why it has played out as it has played out, I think it's very important to articulate what the administration and the president's policies are ex ante. What's the policy position? And I call it the four no's. Number one, no nuclear use in total. Number one. Number two, no NATO troops on the ground. Right? Number three, no attacks inside Russian territory, which I'll mention, by the way, allows for sanctuarization, which allows Putin to destroy Ukraine. And the only limit is how many missiles he has and how accurate he can shoot them. Now, he's not very accurate at shooting them, but over time, it doesn't matter. And no number four, which is no secondary sanctions on countries that don't implement the Western sanctions regime, right? So it means you put all that together and there is no strategic end game that we want to see in Ukraine. So it's not like a thing where we have an idea of how this ends, like General Petraeus famously said in 2003. And then we work backwards with what capabilities we want to deliver on the battlefield to achieve those aims, right? So instead, what we get are these kind of vague ideas about we want Putin to suffer a strategic defeat or for him to be weakened, as Secretary Austin said, or Secretary Blinken, that we want to tilt the battlefield in Ukraine's favor. What does all that mean? It means that the war ends 
when Putin decides that it ends, unfortunately. Now, the policy mix can change, and let's see how that goes here in the next several weeks and months, right? But in the meantime, this is where we're at. The other issue is the following, and I'll, I want to put everyone onto this paper. There's a paper from the Rand Corporation by a guy named Samuel Cherub. And you guys know what the Rand Corporation is, okay? I'll just put it that way. And this paper was entitled Avoiding a Long War in Ukraine. And I'm going to tell you that this is the blueprint going forward. And the fact of the matter is, is that now the United States assesses, it's very clear the administration assesses, that this conflict cannot go on for a protracted period of time because there are three different risks associated with a protracted conflict. Number one is that there's a political risk that this cannot be sustained. So a little tidbit for you. We've delivered over $100 billion of aid to Ukraine in one year. The next largest recipient is Israel with $3.5 billion. So that level of support cannot be sustained into next year and surely not indefinitely. Number two is that it's really having an impact on our readiness and our stocks of our weapon systems, etc., because of our defense industrial base. And number three is that there's a risk of escalation, again, which goes back to the four no's. There's a risk that the longer this goes on, the more Putin's inclined to use nuclear weapons and the more that you bump up against NATO and World War III, right? So we need to try to bring this situation to a close, and that gets us to Putin. So, David, I don't know if you want to chat a little bit about some of the, I'm going to call it information operations <laughs> around what's going on in Russia and what's going on with Putin, but um, I'll tell you that a lot of the information is in, that's circulating in the West is not accurate. Well, let, let's do this because I think I think that could be extremely interesting. And if there's a way to do that quickly, there may not be. Let, let's cover that. And then parlay that, though, into, into China. Where, where China comes into this. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, there's a lot of talk out there that Putin has been decimated. The military has been decimated. His economy has been destroyed. And, you know, soon he'll have to come to the negotiating that's patently untrue. And that's not just conjecture, that's the facts. The facts are the following, is that the Russian economy only fell by 2.1% in 2022, which was better than 2020 and COVID, right? The unemployment rate is down. And this war has been for Putin, who's a revenue maximizer, what I call a positive carry trade right? Which is that the gas revenues in 2021 from Gazprom, 60 billion. In 2022, with a minus 90 BCM reduction in volumes, what was the revenues to Gazprom? 90 billion from 60 last year, right? So the costs on the economic side have not been imposed, and I'm going to get to that here more of that in a second. But most importantly is on the security front, yes, he's lost a lot of men, but Putin doesn't care about his men. 
this is a whole issue about mass over precision. And the Air Force and the Navy in Russia are still basically intact. That's according to the Pentagon. So that's the first thing. The second thing is on the economy in Russia and the leverage that we have over Putin um, with the, in, in the economic sphere. And there's a speech that Putin gave to the Federal Assembly last week, which I would encourage everyone to actually read. No one read it here in the West, very few. But he embarked on what he even called a, a short philosophical digression. And he talked about the economy. And he basically said that this was an opportunity for Russia to restructure its domestic economy because he articulated the following, that after 1998 and the sovereign default was that Russia made a, a bargain with the West, was that you guys were going to get cheap natural resources in exchange for high-tech capital and cheap Western capital, or excuse me, high-tech high, high technology and cheap capital. And what was the end result of that was that productivity in Russia fell because long-term industry was not able to develop. So they were going now from Russia, the economic plan is to pivot. They're going to pivot from the West to China and the energy exports that went to Europe will be totally made up by the Sakhalin 3 uh, project, the Power Siberia 2 in from uh, the Yamal Peninsula through Mongolia into China, and then the new gas hub with Turkey. So this whole idea that um, the Russians, because of the relationship with Europe, are in trouble is just not true. Then they are pivoting in one last way, which I think is kind of very interesting and very important on the economic side. I think it's important for market participants to understand this, is Putin's plan is to have Russia transition from being an oil and gas exporter to being a sea lane provider in the Arctic and being the world leader in agriculture. So the Arctic sea route is extremely important because as it opens and as the Arctic Circle starts to melt, it will reduce the shipping time from, for example, China to Europe from 35 days to under 14. And the excess gas that they have will be used as inputs to agriculture and fertilizer, etc. Right. So I spent a little time on it, but I think that it's important to understand these details. Yeah. Because we have a lot less leverage over Putin than a lot of, I think, U.S. policymakers would like to think. And here's the last thing on the security front, how things have changed from Putin's perspective, is number one, he's received a bailout from a lot of his allies, the Chinese, the Indians, the Turks, uh, Iran. That's the first thing. The second is that he has totally altered the norms of war fighting. So think about it. He has been able to now use Nuclear coercion, number one. He's totally dismantled this idea of, no, of non-combatant immunity, where now, as part of war fighting, you just kill civilians and destroy critical infrastructure of civilians. And the third is that he uses these extra legal means 
Wagner group and all these paramilitary groups, right, to conduct warfare. And that is a direct affront to the West. And so at the end of the day, he has put a stress test on the political will of the West. And you tell me how he thinks that he's sitting. Does Putin think that he's losing at this point? Well, I, I think that it would be impossible for him to think that based on that criteria, that I would think um, if it is not if it is not about the global PR of how quickly he was supposedly supposed to take down Kiev, and if it is about the rhetoric coming from Tucker Carlson, I think Putin likes where he's sitting. I totally agree. And so this kind of segues to where China is in all this, and then we'll get to some yeah. of the market implications, right? The number one national security risk to Xi Jinping is not Taiwan. I think this is out of consensus, but I'm going to say it. The number one national security risk to Xi Jinping in China is that Vladimir Putin falls from power particularly at the hands of the West that would then destabilize the long border and destabilize Central Asia and create a whole slew of um, other precedents that are unfavorable to the regime in Beijing. So there is a incentive to prolong the conflict as long as possible within limits, right? Number two is that Xi Jinping and the Chinese know that it is an article of faith that the Chinese and the Russians never get together because there's been a, an assessment by the Pentagon that if there is a crisis simultaneously in Taiwan, in Ukraine, and in Iran, and the Middle East, they cannot deter all of those threats simultaneously. Right? So if you are the Chinese at this point, whether you really love Putin or not kind of doesn't really matter if you're trying to extract concessions from the United States, right? You need to play that Russia card as long as it can go. So that's, I think, on the security side. Now, what is balancing that, and especially uh, lately, let's call it in the last three to four months, has been the economic incentives from Beijing. And that Beijing really needs to de-escalate the economic relationship with the West. So a couple things that I think are super important here. Number one is that the, the abrupt U-turn in COVID policy has diminished a tremendous amount of trust in the government at the local level. That has to be restored. And more, maybe more importantly is that the loss of trust in the international community has been tremendous as well. So Beijing understands that 2023 is their year to restore trust. They have to do it. Um, otherwise, they're in really big trouble with the supply chains, with the capital outflows, etc. And they have come to a realis realization, I think, that they have, a they have an exchange rate problem. And what are the issues? Number one is that there's a lack of consumption. Well, that can be ameliorated through a strengthening domestic exchange rate. Number two, they have an FDI problem. 
They have a property bubble problem. Those two issues, again, ameliorated through capital inflows and a stronger exchange rate. And then you have this whole idea about can China be an engine of global growth? And here's where you really get to the rub is that if China is really going to reopen, they need trade. It's not enough just to fund a domestic expansion if they're going to be an engine of global growth. And if they need trade, they need trade with Europe and they need trade with the United States. And to do that, they need to de-escalate not only the trade relationship, but also help put a close to the conflict in Europe. And here's where I just want to bring up two things that I think are super important, right? So Sergei Lavrov, who's the foreign minister of Russia during his press conference, his annual press conference, I think it was in December or January, he had this really great uh, kind of dialogue where he said that he talked to the Chinese and the Chinese are very keenly aware that the U.S. position towards China is, quote, not a joke, meaning that I think that our credibility on trade, IP, etc., um, and the approach to China is credible. But he said, number two, more importantly, was that the Chinese are not like us, these Russians, which they are far more integrated into the global economy. They have far more dollar-denominated exposure. They are not, do not have a sanctions-proof economy. And so it will take them time to decouple. So what does that mean, right? Is clearly, I think that there has been a realization that they need to de-escalate the relationship. And here's something that I want to read for you from Xi Jinping in the authoritative Kishi Journal. Greater efforts should be made to attract foreign capital. And it is necessary to properly implement the national treatment of foreign funded enterprises, promote fair competition, ensure that foreign funded enterprises participate equally in government and in standard formulation with the law increase the protection of intellectual property rights and the legitimate rights and interests of foreign investors, period. Now, could have stolen that from USTR, right? Yeah. That's from the big man himself. Now, here's the question that I always ask all the China skeptics, right? You can't have it both ways. You can't say that Xi Jinping is all omnipotent, right? And he can do whatever he wants, but then when I give you this evidence that he wants to de-escalate, they say, oh, well, he doesn't have the juice to do that. Which one is it, right? To me, Xi Jinping is just the weighted average of all the different factions on, in China, and China's a big place, right? So ultimately, for market participants, I mean, if this de-escalation can be successful, near-term, tactically, I'm not talking about the kind of long-term strategic outlook, but I mean tactically over the next 12 to 24 months, that is a massive boost to global growth and growth dynamics globally. And it's very bullish. And it's um, politically, it accrues to the benefit of President Xi and not President Biden. I don't know if that's totally true. Because so, it may not be binary. It could be, it could be both. Could be both. So this is what I call the 
Biden, not soft landing, but the Biden moon landing. Explain. So part of the, um, I think, political calculus from the U.S. side to de-escalate the bilateral economic relationship with China is not just because there's a diplomatic window and an opening, but because of the political calendar, right? That think about the following. If you can get to the end of the year and President Xi comes to the APEC summit in November and they have what I'll call the San Francisco Declaration, where they both sides come to a mutual agreement about the guardrails in the relationship and kind of like a new Shanghai communique, right? There's a list of things that we agree to disagree on, these red lines, but we're not going to approach them. Then there's another list of things that we can agree on and we can work together on. Think about the following going into January of 2024, in particularly if this de-escalation includes a negotiated settlement in Ukraine that you're going to have President Biden that will then be able to credibly say that, number one, I avoided nuclear war. I defeated Putin on the battlefield. I finished the job on China that Trump could never do by getting them to play by the rules through bringing our allies together. And now America is back and respected all around the world. And in the meantime, back at home, what have I done? I've invested a historic trillion dollars in infrastructure. All the while, I have tamed inflation, avoided a recession, taming inflation without destroying the institutional credibility of the central bank. Meanwhile, unemployment is at a record low, and wages to the American worker are back at all-time highs. You tell me. David, and this is, I think, the risk that the Republican Party has and our guys in the conservative movement have. If that scenario plays out in 2024, Jesus at the right hand of the Father could come down and run in the election, and the people would say, uh, we'll take the old guy. So that's the moon landing is essentially a de-escalation that is China-driven that um, can end up accruing to the benefit of Biden, both in the perception of the outcome of Russia-Ukraine and the present dynamic with U.S.-China. I totally think so. I think that is the, that is the current policy intent. And that, that becomes a short-term bullishness in markets. It uh, leads to multiple expansion and risk premium for risk assets. And then the inverse of that, the alternative, the, uh, the other side of the coin is a structural deterioration in the rules-based order that leads to an embedded compression of multiples because of the lack of peace premium and the acceptance of the cowboys like Putin are now um, tolerable to Western leaders. I think that that is the long-term, more strategic view, is that that is not, over time, good for markets. But in the near term, 
I've got to tell you, I think it's laid the groundwork for a historic rally. A historic rally. Think about the growth impetus that you would get out of China, number one, and the spillover impacts that would have on emerging markets. And then the spillover impacts that's going to have on Europe. And think about a trillion dollar reconstruction and recapitalization bill in Ukraine that ultimately is going to do what? Unleash fiscal space in Europe, right? You can't tell me that we're going to get a recession in the United States <laughs> with that global backdrop. And, you know, think about the energy price is that, you know, the moment that there's a headline of a negotiated settlement or that Putin's coming to the negotiating table, $10, $15 of geopolitical risk premium are coming out of the front end in the oil price. And does the Fed really need to keep going at that point? We'll get to monetary policy here in a bit, but it is, it is a tremendous bullish risk outlook. So, Renee, what, what I'm hearing is the possibility of Putin responding that way puts uh, a potential for an upside rally that the markets are not thinking about and that all of this is predicated on the notion that people are misreading potentially what China's real incentives may be. I think that's totally correct. So I call 2023 the year of skew, where the tails are very fat in either direction, because we are either going to get on the right-hand side, a de-escalation in the U.S.-China economic relationship and a resolution to the conflict in Ukraine. Because those two things are related, right? They're all part of the same deal. Or otherwise, if they, if they fall apart, then I got to tell you, I think we're on our way to World War III. But this whole idea that we're just going to kind of sit here and muddle through, um, the 23 and 24 cycle, it's just not true, right? Renee, what if the belief is that you're right, but it's in 24? So there is a muddle through in 23, and then you get a fat tail result, either left or right, in 24. It could, right? I mean, I don't, it's tough. We'll have to see. It's path dependent on what happens over the next several months. So maybe it's a good idea if we just kind of lay out what some of the signposts are for the bullish case and the bearish case. So on the bullish case, it's one thing to, I think, reiterate is, at least from the U.S. side, they want to pursue this window of opportunity, number one. Because even if it's just a tactical play by Beijing and Putin, it's still an opportunity that could maybe potentially turn into a semi-permanent detente, right? And more importantly, our allies in the region, both in Europe and in Asia, they want to de-escalate both the conflict and the bilateral relationship. So the first thing that we need to see is sometime after the National People's Congress, that starts March 4th, the two sessions, and takes about a week or two, uh, the President and Xi Jinping need to get on a video teleconference, because we need to break this logjam, this diplomatic logjam, right? If that can happen, 
and it, if it does happen, then the next couple things to look for are Secretary Blinken and Yellen going to Beijing, and there are a few, I think, key signposts that market participants should look for, and that are low-hanging fruit from the China side. The first is on the trade front, some tariff relief in exchange for some commitments on IP rights protection and subsidies, etc. The next is the vaccine. And can well, we come before, to an agreement? Before you go to the yeah. vaccine, before you go to vaccine, why would intellectual property protections now be on the table when Ivan, even in a more hawkish China trade environment from the prior administration, there was very little movement on IP? Because there was no movement because the Chinese didn't really want anything. They didn't care. The leverage um, has changed. The leverage has changed because now the Chinese economy is on the back foot. And, you know, if China's trying to go up the value chain, then they themselves need IP right protection. Right. So I think that's one of the key things to remember that I think a lot of folks are forgetting about, at least the economic incentive on the Chinese side. Um, they also want to see if they can figure out a way to produce the vaccine, the Western vaccine, domestically in China, but that would require um, Beijing agreeing to developed country status at the WTO. Tough, but we'll see. The third is on EM debt relief, and this is part of the multilateral development bank reform, but this is providing debt relief to the low-income countries like Sri Lanka and Zambia, Pakistan, etc., which maybe to us out here in developed world doesn't really move the needle, but as a signal, it makes a great uh, deal of difference, especially in the emerging market bond indices, right? And what's predicated in all of this is two red lines, that China cannot systematically backfill Putin on the circumvention of the sanctions regime, and most importantly, the weapons material for the conflict in Ukraine. Now, I will tell you that there has been sanctions evasion <laughs> by Chinese companies, and there has been even some weapons material assistance. But what matters is state-sponsored, state-backed intervention, like with Iran, for example. Right? right now, currently, off the table, but we'll have to see. That's the risks. On the conflict front, at the end of the day, we now have com we now have competing peace plans, right? Which Beijing produced their peace plan, Ukraine has their peace plan, and the point is is that they're not supposed to be the negotiated settlement. I say that now we've just established the bid ask spread on peace, and that spread will be compressed over the next several months on the battlefield in Ukraine. So here's a couple things on the battlefield front that we need to watch out From now till May 18th, and I picked that date because May 19th is the beginning of the G7 summit. Between now and then, a lot of capabilities and kit are going to be delivered onto the battlefield in Ukraine, and we will see what Ukraine can do with it. The objective is to reveal the military balance and hopefully the battlefield outcomes are such that Putin finally comes to the conclusion that there's no military solution. And so he needs to come to the negotiating table. 
from the Ukrainian side, what they are trying to do is twofold. Number one is that they need to make some territorial gains. And I'll tell you, just from a strategic, uh, let's call it tactical standpoint, there are three choke points that you need to watch out for. What they want to do is to hold the line in Donbass in the east while making some gains in the south, and then isolate, but not invade, isolate Crimea. Because if you can do that, then you can bring, at least in theory, Putin to the negotiating table. And there are three key choke points to isolating Crimea. There are the Kerch Bridge. There's the uh, highway of the land bridge in a town called Melitopol. And then there's something called the Perikop Isthmus, which is a five by seven kilometer block of land that connects the Sea of Azov to the Black Sea. If they can cut off those three choke points, they can isolate Crimea. And is that a reference to trade or to military transport? Both. Yeah. Right? So, and then once you get to May 19th, there's this window between the G7 meeting and the NATO Leaders Summit in Vilnius, Lithuania on July the 12th. It ends July the 12th. And in theory, that is when the height of the negotiated settlement uh, negotiations should at least start and start in earnest. And so there's four areas of a negotiated settlement. And this is super important and you, you, know, you guys should write it down, right? If you wanna get there, you need to come to an agreement on four areas. Number one is the degree of territorial concessions. How much land will Ukraine have to give up, quite frankly? Number two is what kind of security architecture can the Ukrainians have that's credible? That will also convince Putin not to try this again. Number three is the cost of the reconstruction. And who's going to burden share in those costs? Because it's going to be well over a trillion dollars. Um, and then finally is on the institutional architecture, which is the UN Security Council reform. Because clearly uh, we can't have the current framework as we have going forward, right? So on number on look, number one, mm -hmm. is that um, something that if Ukraine uh, is is there a risk of Ukraine being perceived as excessively stubborn about and isolating support of the West and NATO? I think that is their open opening bargaining position is the 1991 borders, right? But if you listen to Chairman Milley and all the rest of the U.S. and NATO assessment is that Ukraine retaking back 20% of their territory uh, this year is highly unlikely. So, look, here's the question. That's a lot to get through. But it's, and it's difficult. But the question is, what's the alternative? And the alternative is, like I mentioned earlier, it's World War III. So, you know, for guys that want to talk about a bearish case, and this is what I always bring it back to, right? I can lay out a bearish case for you, and it's the following. It's that the Ukrainians actually suffer a breakthrough in the east in Donbass, right? And they actually start to lose territory even further. Because I can assure you if that happens, Putin is not coming to any negotiating table under any circumstance. With China or otherwise. Doesn't matter, right? Um, and look, if the... If the Russians produce a breakthrough, 
the Chinese are less likely to abandon support, right? But so, why would they get a breakthrough in the Donbass region now when they haven't been able to get it in a less equipped Ukraine for months? I, I don't know. I'm not a military kinetic warfare expert. But if that if it scenario were to play out, that's a yeah. very bad scenario. Okay. Right? And ultimately, number two is that, look, um, Beijing cannot actually control Putin. And Beijing's diplomacy cannot deliver peace because it's a very immature diplomatic regime, which is true. I mean, when's the last time that you heard of China bringing peace anywhere? Okay, right? And the third is ultimately that Xi Jinping and Putin cannot be deterred. That Xi Jinping is going to decide to prioritize Putin regardless of all of these economic incentives from the West. And ultimately that Putin can't be deterred at all. Basically, that he's irrational or that he's on a death wish. I just don't buy it. And here's the reason why. In November of last year, CIA Director Bill Burns went to Turkey and he met with his um, counterpart, Narushkin. And he was there to, do, to deliver a message that any use of nuclear weapons would have, quote, disastrous consequences for Putin and the Russian state. Now, the context for this was, was that a few days before that, Secretary Austin was in Korea with the South Korean counterpart, and the South Korean counterpart said that any use of nuclear weapons by the Kim regime would be the end of the regime. So I think that message was clearly delivered loud and clear, and you know, all the talk about nuclear and the dirty bomb, etc., guess what, that all ended. So I think that Putin can be deterred. The risk is U.S. credibility and NATO credibility. And that's what we have to watch for here over the next several months. And so let's bring it back to some market discussion, and we'll we'll tie it up. Um, you mentioned the uh, the Biden either soft or moon landing scenario in twenty four, largely with circumstances outside of his control, but nevertheless that accrue to his benefit. Um, that has a number of implications along partisan lines, along. Uh, economic conditions in the U.S. and and onward into the November 24 elections. Um, China-driven global synchronized growth, I think a lot of Americans might have an opinion right now that anything good for China is bad for the U.S. that fits a certain cultural talking point and political talking point. But certainly economically, that's not true. That if there Absolutely. is, if there is um, growth in global cyclicality, uh, whether people like it or not, it's probably accruing to a uh, better standard of living in U.S. economic reality. And Congress wants increased trade market access from China. That's a dirty little secret. Yeah. Still. So what do you see as some of the bigger economic takeaways around these scenarios. I don't want to take away your thunder, but what, let, let's just have you unpack it. What do you see as the major sort of, uh, uh, you know, takeaways here? Currency, uh, 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 labor markets, where do you want to go with this? 
So the first is on the rearmament of the defense industrial base. That is a long-term structural theme that's going to happen across all the West, this upgrading to NATO modernization standards. Whether uh, or not there's fiscal room to do so. That's what's going to be interesting with the U.S., because who has fiscal room? The Chinese and the Europeans. And this kind of segues into one of the themes is who is actually going to make the money from the rebuilding of Ukraine? Because it's a trillion dollar bill, right? So that also speaks to, you know, whether it's the Gulf countries, the Chinese, the Europeans, is, you know, there's a large, it's going to have to be a large syndicate or consortium of countries that commit to this rebuilding. So I think, you know, that's a really big theme. And if you put that within the context of global synchronized growth, then that's really big for EM. And then and the next that, big question is that, is that um, in, in a global industrials theme, um, in, in your mind, is that a theme that the biggest and best power companies, machinery companies, energy infrastructure companies, construction, construction. anything uh, requiring CapEx benefits, and that could be local European companies benefiting in Europe, local Asian and Asia, local U.S. and U.S. All of it, all of the above, right? So I think that's uh, this whole idea about the rearmament of the defense industrial base ultimately leaking into the industrial manufacturing sector, um, I think is highly underpriced. And surely in the wake of a, the immediate knee jerk in a negotiated settlement is that, you know, markets are going, are going to want to sell those names because the war premium is, is over. Right. And I would, I would I would suggest to do the opposite. So that's the first that theme thing, is right? not that theme is not priced in right now largely because that outcome is not even fully anticipated or appreciated. I totally agree. Okay. The second one is on natural resource demand. So, you know, there's this great um, part of the OPEC press conference in October where the Saudi oil minister said, "Well, in in the event of a China reopening, it's a million barrels a day, and that will increase supply chain concerns in China, which might drive inflation dynamics higher, which then might cause the Federal Reserve and central banks to hike more, which increases the value of the exchange rate and causes demand destruction in oil. And that was the basis for the two million barrel a day production cut, right? So here is the big question I have for you, David, is in this scenario of a global reopening, what's the worst case scenario for monetary policy? And to me, it's 100 basis points of repricing, which is that basically the Fed just keeps going 25 basis points every meeting. Let's take off the table of 50 basis points, right? So that gets you to a, let's call it six and a half percent policy rate. By year end. Now, within that context of de-escalation on the economic front, global synchronized growth, conflict resolution, 
cares? You tell me. Well, the only the only people that would care in that scenario are people that have re-entered the Kathy Wood trade. Okay, and they deserve to lose. They deserve right? to. They will get their faces ripped off, and they will probably deserve it. Yeah. So look, at our, the our end God of the is day, a jealous God. <laughs> That's right, my brother. So look, I mean, at the end of the day, in this type of environment, it seems to me that. There is a renaissance in long-short uh, investing, right? Because think about this environment of a higher cost, uh, higher natural resource demand environment, is that companies can do one of three things. They can either pass through, they can eat it in lower margins, or they can do capex, or they can do some mix of the three. Yeah. Right. So at the end of the day, and here's the last story that I want to tell you on the investment front. And it's very interesting because it came, I went to go visit, a, I'll say in an agency of the Pentagon. Okay. It was one of those places where you're not allowed to have your, have yourself. And usually, you know, defense people are very bad at markets, but I talked to this Lieutenant general and he was the only one that was unbelievable at markets. And he gave this example of John Deere. And let me kind of go through it. One of the most fascinating investment conversations I've ever had. He said, number one, John Deere is a national security asset of the United States. It's too big to fail because it helps us avoid conflicts and famines and things like that all over the world. Uh, number two is in 2017... John Deere's market cap was one-third the size of Lockheed Martin. And Lockheed Martin, as you know, is the largest defense prime uh, in the world. But in 2017, John Deere decided to embark on a CapEx program. And that CapEx program was using machine learning, computer, computer vision, AI, to, for example, optimize their slate of equipment. So here's the super, like... Uh, Easy example. When a tractor goes over some crops and it sees what I'm going to call a green shoot, underneath that tractor, there's a camera, and through machine learning and computer vision and AI, that tractor will be able to assess whether that green shoot is blade of grass or wheat or part of the plant. And if it's part of the plant, it shoots it with water. And if it's a weed, it shoots it with a roundup. Now, what that did to John Deere is that it totally transformed the company from a one-time buyer or a one-time seller of manufacturing equipment to a subscription-based platform provider, right, of equipment instead. And the multiple expanded from eight times to 20 times. And now today, the market cap of John Deere exceeds that of Lockheed Martin. And I said to myself, man, we just need to find where those are <laughs> over and over and over and over again. And I think that's the big investment takeaway from this whole entire thing and this whole entire conflict is who's the next John Deere? Those are the next Googles. 
those are the next 10 bagger, 100 bagger uh, type of investments. And is it um, industrial with a digital overlay? The, the I think so. Yeah. yeah. And that digital overlay comes from the innovation that comes from the defense yeah. industrial bases rearmament. Yeah. Yeah. So um, to wrap it up, we uh, have spent much of the last 30 years living in a peace premium that has been more called into question than markets have appreciated and people have appreciated. It's happening hand in hand with this time of Fed tightening. And your point is that it is not merely coincident, um, but in fact correlated that the Fed response function um, is tied very much to these geopolitical realities, not merely domestic inflation data, most of which the Fed has known the different things I've been saying about the inflation data well no before I've ever said it anyways. Um, and, and at the same time, um, the read that many economic actors have on China is somewhat pedestrian in while being perhaps appropriately circumspect and suspicious has perhaps not fully appreciated their real economic and political aims, the pressures that COVID policies have put on Xi and that the exchange rate um, has complicated for their own capital markets needs and that China could end up playing the role of peacemaker or de-escalator, that Putin is not the irrational crazy man, um, but is in fact getting much of what he wanted, even out of what appears sometimes largely through misinformation to be a totally debacled effort. And that therefore Putin may be more rational than we think. Xi may be more rational than we think. And none of that is necessarily a good thing because their rationality could work against the U.S., but it could very well work towards de-escalating this conflict, which brings a market melt-up as those uh, as the risk of World War III is repriced, and um, at the same time, paving the way for the Fed to come off of its tightening policy, all the while um, opening up a new market landscape around rearmament, around... Um, domestic manufacturing around a rebuild of Ukraine that lends itself to global industrials uh, being a um, not merely attractive sector, but a Google-like opportunity using your John Deere opportunity, your John Deere analogy. How'd I do as a recap? I think that's why they call you the maestro. Yeah, they, they don't <laughs> call me. They don't call me the maestro, and, and, and that includes people in my own house, especially especially well, those in my own house. As you shouldn't yeah. look. I'll leave you with this last thing. Right? Is I want to be clear about this. Just because I think that the modal base case is bullish for markets does not mean that I endorse the current policy mix. Because this is, I think, ultimately our version of peace of our time. That if this works, that the most likely scenario, not immediately, but in the next sometime, four, five, maybe ten years, is that this is going to come back to haunt us. 
because our adversaries at that point will not be weakened but strengthened. And then the United States is going to have to make a choice about are we going to uphold and defend the rules-based order, right? And this whole idea about the rules-based order, you and I, you know, so maybe I think probably our favorite thing to talk about. And I always use this example of Gandhi is that, you know, one day Gandhi was supposedly asked what he thought about Western civilization. And he said, oh, well, it sounds like a good idea. But clearly didn't necessarily believe in it. And I think this is what... Um, whether it's Putin, whether it's Xi, whether it's the Iranians, North Koreans, even some people inside Western society want to put on the table is that, is this the organizing principle of Western society or not, right? And, you know, there was, it's tough because I understand why we have the policy mix that we have. But what I look up to was more, you know, JFK during the middle of the Cuban Missile Crisis. So he gave this speech, October 22nd, 1962, right in the middle of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And 18 minutes, 18 minute speech, he laid out what Khrushchev and the Soviet Union were doing, the threat that they posed to the U.S. homeland, and then articulated what the policy of the United States was in Article 3 of that speech, where he said that any use of nuclear weapons against any country in the Western Hemisphere would be an attack on the United States and then would, quote, very important, require a full retaliatory response against the Soviet Union. Two days later, these Russian sh ships that were on their way to Cuba stopped and turned around, and it was over. Now, the United States had a lot of credibility at that time. Khrushchev knew that whatever he thought of Kennedy, Dwight D. Eisenhower was right behind him, and it wasn't less than two decades ago that we had put a non-proportional response to end of war. So are we going to have to get to that point again? I think so but you're going to have to have a leader that has the credibility and the will to do what JFK did in October of 1962. Otherwise, I don't know, man, right? We're going to have to see, but this is uh, going to come back and haunt us, I think, uh, not in the immediate term, but in the long term. Renee, thank you for sharing your insights, your words of wisdom. Uh, for those listening and, and believing that we covered an awful lot of foreign policy and military intelligence and geography, uh, history, um, and not uh, as much in economics and capital markets as you tune in for at this podcast, I will say that there's a sense in which you're right. We did cover a lot of those topics. Renee has significant expertise in those different aforementioned disciplines. But I don't agree that it isn't connected to economics. And I don't agree that it isn't connected to financial markets. I think the point of what we're doing, and remember, like me, Renee is a capital markets guy. That's where he makes his living is generating intelligence, generating commentary and perspective 
for those who will apply the information and commentary into investment themes. And so none of it is um, armchairing. None of it is banter. There is an application that is relevant. There will be premises that prove to be wrong. There will be movement to conclusions that proves to be um, poorly conceived, as is the case of any financial actor making decisions out of premises and, and arguments. Um, but these things are relevant to the way we think about current economic conditions. And most importantly, to the broader understanding and expectations um, that the international rules-based order has on a free society. The reality that many people like myself who have devoted a significant part of my present life and future life to defending certain economic precepts is that half of the battle is that the economic precepts I'm defending are so true and so right that nobody has to think about them anymore because they're so taken for granted. They're so baked in. The international rules-based order is something that we can have the luxury of thinking about if we like it or not because it's been so baked in in a post-World War II society. And, uh, and particularly a post-Cold War society. So what Renee is doing here is profoundly important, not merely to the news cycle, to politics, to geopolitics, to foreign policy, but to economics, to the way it will play through in investment opportunity, yes, capital markets, rate policy, uh, currency exchange, but the broader concept of a free society is intertwined with this entire topic. And we've tried to give you a number of different uh, considerations uh, therewith today. So once again, Renee, thank you. Thank you for the work you and your fine team at Corbu are doing. And I hope that uh, even if I have to wait another year, um, the good news for me selfishly is I think our podcast listeners have to wait another year to have you come back, but I only have to wait till next time you and I have dinner. <laughs> and have right, <laughs> Over some good Asian food, as always. That's exactly right. All right, brother, we will let you go. And thank you all for listening to another episode of Capital Record. Please rate us, uh, subscribe. Um, thank you for your commitment to the cause of a free and virtuous society. We'll be back at you next week with Dr. Vance again talking about uh, the state of the economy. Thanks for listening to National Review's Capital Record.